everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 516, Penalties, Purdy, and Pressing. Back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, things are good. I'm about to, you know, preparing myself for several days of, of excitement, of nerves. Feels a little bit like I'm about to play in a World Cup quarterfinal, just in terms of how my mental and emotional preparation is going. But yeah, it's a good week. <laughs> yeah, you're already teasing the mouthwatering quarterfinal matchup that is England v. France. But we'll... Uh... We'll have to get to that a little bit later, I think. Yeah. So I, I actually had a pretty good conversation that I was happy to uh, brag a little bit. Over the weekend, I went and um, got some drinks with my realtor. Uh, he invited me to his Christmas party, and he uh, rented out an entire like beer bar, which was pretty cool, and kind of just put an open tab up, and we all went out and had like a bunch of beer and kind of hung out, and Santa came for the kids and everything. And we got to talking, him and a few other people, and they started discussing the NBA betting scandal. And we're, we're very excited to talk about the Netflix documentary that they had just watched and how uh, there was this ref in the NBA and he was fixing games. And I was very happy to tell them all, oh, you haven't heard the real story, guys. And, and pitched this awesome podcast called The Big Chill Podcast. I had a great interview. Uh, about the, from the best-selling author who wrote literally the book on the NBA betting scandal. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Yeah, it's nice when sometimes I find it awkward, right, to bring up the podcast, even though we've been doing it for a few years now and it's grown and, you know, we've got a good listenership and happy we get some very cool guests on and get to cover some cool topics. But I do feel like there's always that slight bit of judgment when you tell people, I've got a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it can occasionally get into some kind of awkward discussions. Sometimes people are very excited to hear about it as soon as you say it. Sometimes they feel a little bit sorry for you and they're going to imagine that you've recorded like three episodes and, and your parents have listened to no one else, you know? So it's uh, sometimes I just don't even bother to bring it up because I just don't want to deal with the trying to explain it and then going through everyone's always going to ask for numbers like, Oh, how many people listen? Like, you know, all those sorts of different things. And, and sometimes like, I just don't want to deal with that. Yeah. So, um, I, I recommended it and, uh, he said he's going to check it out and then just to call his bluff on it. I sent him the link to the podcast twice <laughs> <laughs> and said, can't look forward to discussing it with you next time I see you. <laughs> you... <laughs> yeah. And I guess this is the real test. Not only will he listen to that single episode, but will he continue to listen to to later episodes, and then he'll bring this up when you do next see him. That's how Maybe. you can really. That's how you weed out the people who just give you the "I'll give it a listen" versus actually turn into listeners. Exactly. But on that note, where do we kick things off in terms of? Do we go straight into? Do we want to go straight into the World Cup discussion? Do we want to start elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think let's let's go with the World Cup because I mean there were some pretty good NFL games, but again, the NFL is still kind of 
two thirds of the way into the season now, and you know we're already at the knockout stages for the for the World Cup. So let's start with the World Cup, and I guess maybe we can go match by match. You know, there haven't been too many. Um, we can touch a little bit on each one. So we'll start yeah. again, left to right, as I like to do, uh, with Netherlands and the United States, and that was a three-one win by the Netherlands. Impressions? Um, you know, I thought it was. It was a good match. I thought the U.S. played pretty well, uh, and and they showed some attacking threat in that. Sort of as we predicted going into it, it was, a, you know, they the U.S. were good enough to stand a chance against the Netherlands, uh, and in the end, I think just think the superior quality of the Netherlands attacking players proved to be the the ultimate difference. I think from the U.S. perspective, they should be disappointed with all three of the goals that they conceded. They just switched off uh, on three different yeah. occasions twice in almost the first two goals in almost identical fashion in terms of just not picking up players running into the box when a ball is being cut back. And then the third time, I don't know, there's what, five or six US players in the box and somehow they've allowed a player to drift into the far post for a, a, a significant number of seconds. And I think criticism there has to fall. For the third goal, I'd be highly critical of the goalkeeper, of Turner. Because I think that's where an experienced goalkeeper is screaming at his defenders. He needs to be noticing someone being, and you had everyone there necessary to cover. I mean, the the Dutch almost let it go. This opportunity slipped by because it's 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 you know it was almost unbelievable to think that you had a player standing that open for that period of time at the back post as a ball was waiting to come in. Um, but then ultimately, and I think. In reading some of the response, the kind of reports and responses to that performance, I think from an American perspective, a lot of people have just said, well, oh, we went to sleep and stuff. Some of that's, it's a lack of quality. Like it, the difference between a good player and a bad player sometimes is that they don't switch off for a play. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. everything and else about them is identical, but it's just a good defender is never having that moment where they go, uh oh, I let that players get away from me. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, so. I mean, so two of the plays you bring up, the first one, that was uh, Tyler Adams who didn't track back on Memphis. And that and that one to me is an unfortunate one because for the whole of the tournament, Tyler Adams probably was their best their best player. I mean, he played really well. He was their captain, uh, you know, so obviously he's going to be good. But, I mean, he played really well for, uh, for, for a team that, you know, had a, a few times where they were kind of on their back foot. He kind of always stood strong. So I was impressed by that. And maybe that was just – Maybe not him being a bad player, but, you know, just had a just had a, a slight lapse, you know, and really what, what is what it is. And I think, you know, Turner, you're right a little bit on that one. But I think overall he actually had a pretty good game as well. I mean, he made a couple of nice saves. Uh, a lot of those goals really weren't his fault. They weren't bad I'm, plays necessarily. I'm not saying, you know? no, no, I, I'm not saying. No, I know. I, I, I'm not saying they're I'm his not saying fault. he did. And I'm not saying that they're bad players, but we're talking about the World Cup, right? This is the, supposed to be, these are the elite of the elite. And, you know, it's there's an exponential difference the higher you go up in the quality of players in a professional sport, right? Like the difference between a cornerback in the NFL and the CFL, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it's huge, but it's only really in a couple of areas. You know what I mean? Like there's not, if you watch them play in, play out, the ninety percent of the plays, you go, okay, he does the same things that the the better player does. It's those ten percent of the times when you notice notice the difference between you know a world class defender and someone who's plying their trade at the bottom of the Premier League. You know, there's yeah. 
there's a reason why you are not playing for the very best clubs in the world. And it's not a criticism of the US or of those players necessarily, but it's just that eventually you're going to see that difference, that moment they switch off or that... And, and some of it's a lack of experience, probably. You know, so so that from- was actually what I was going to ask you, was the sentiment I have here on the mainland <laughs> is that it was an encouraging result in the sense that the thing you kept hearing time after time was they're the second youngest team in the whole World Cup, the youngest in the knockout stage, the second youngest team. They're only going to learn from this. This is all due to inexperience, you know, the, the lack of experience. They're going to learn from this. And while I think there is some truth to that, you look back at last World Cup. Do you know who had the second youngest team in the last World Cup? France. What did they do? They won. You know who also <laughs> had the second youngest team in the World Cup? England. What they do? They went to the semis. And granted, yes, these teams well, are they were both back the second again. youngest teams. Yeah, they were tied for both the second <laughs> okay. youngest teams. They literally <laughs> were. Okay. <laughs> and and I guess you look back, you look now, and yes, those teams that were young then and were successful are now still successful so maybe they have gotten better who knows but at the end of the day like you can't just keep riding off of the we're really young and inexperienced give us more x more years x more years you know you keep hearing that with the us and at a point like how much longer can you say that is is if by the next world cup if they don't make a deep run then is it okay this is who we are this is what we're going to be like you know when does it change so it may never change for starters. I think in general, the American public has to temper expectations when it comes to, you know, there is this thought that they are constantly building these golden generations and that sooner or later, you know, every, all the pieces will fall into place and they'll suddenly win a world cup. And it's, it's just, it, it may well never happen. Certainly in our lifetimes, you know, How'd and go for Belgium. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, tons of golden generations. England have had multiple golden generations that have not come close to winning world cups. You know, and so, and those are, when we're talking about Belgium or England, we're talking about truly golden generations, multiple world-class players, every player playing at massive clubs, winning things in the domestic cup competition, club and cup competitions, and then not being able to translate that to international success. From a U.S. perspective, it's like, oh, we have a few players playing in the Premier League and the Bundesliga. Why aren't we winning the World Cup? You know, there has to be a degree of realism um, within what those expectations are. I do agree with you to a certain extent. If you're at the World Cup, you're old enough, you know, there should be expectations that you aren't limited by your inexperience. If you're that limited, you shouldn't be playing and you shouldn't be there because then you're not good enough. And the windows, I think we speak, we've spoken about this multiple times for multiple teams in multiple sports, the windows close so fast. So if you do starting, well, this World Cup, we kind of give them a pass because they were so young. You're right. Then the expectation, the next World Cup, they have to deliver because that's four years on. They won't be the youngest team. They'll all have a World Cup under their belts. You know, so you're doing, you're giving yourself an ex, like an, an out for this performance. And I, I think ultimately, overall, the U.S. should be reasonably pleased with how they played in this World Cup. I think there was like one disappointing performance basically against Wales, and it wasn't even that bad. And then everything else, I think there's a positive from every other performance that they had. So, you know, what are what are the realistic expectations there? But, you know, if if you give yourself that out for this World Cup, then you are heaping a whole lot of pressure on the next one. Because now you're saying, well, four years older, four years more mature, four years more, more experienced, 
a World Cup of experience for most of this the group of players that will then be in the next one. They're also going to be the host nation for the next World Cup or one of the hosts. So with that comes expectations because home nations, Qatar aside, tend to perform pretty well in international competitions. You know, like, I just think as an, America just has to accept you're not going to be number one at everything. And sooner or later, maybe they will win a World Cup. But most countries go a very long period of time without winning World Cups, even when they're very, very good. And getting to the knockout stages is something of a success. I also think sometimes people are, when they look back, oh, this is the best U.S. team we've ever had. They're pretty dismissive of U.S. teams from the past. Like the U.S. team that made the 2002 World Cup quarterfinals and really probably should have beaten Germany in that World Cup quarterfinal. That was a good team that was filled with players playing in, in you know, European football and who had decent amounts of experience and had played at previous World Cups. And the, most American fans are probably too young to even remember that 2002 team now because you're just going to have so many people who are like 25 or younger. And that was just not in, you know, on, it's not on their radar. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a World Cup overall that's a positive for the U.S., but t- expectations have to be tempered slightly. Yeah. And, and I think for me, ultimately what I see them lacking compared to the teams that we'll now get into that, that are moving on is they don't capitalize on their chances. They had a, let's say a few good scoring opportunities in that match and they just didn't capitalize. It just didn't get in the back of the net. Whereas you watch teams like England I mean, in that first half, what did England have? Two real good attempts on goal, and they put them both in, right? And I think yeah, maybe th- maybe three chances and took two. Of yeah. Them, yeah, you know, and I think that that says something about the the US is they just whether it's they don't have the right player yet that can score there when they absolutely need it or or what, but that to me seemed to be what's lacking. And I know that's a very cliche thing to say, but I I, I think you can see it. No, they lack a, a, a real natural goal scorer. I think that's the hardest thing to find in football nowadays. I mean, you look at it, it's, it's why people pay an absolute premium. It's why City were so desperate to get Holland. It's why Holland is such a game changer for City. It's not easy to find players who just consistently score goals and take the, the vast majority of their chances. Like they are not, most countries coming into this World Cup do not have one of those. And so the US are not unique in that factor, but sure. And look, the Pulisic chance early on was a huge chance. And some, you know, the momentum of these knockout games can is altered so drastically by who scores that opening goal. And we can get onto, I mean, we can transition. I guess it's worth saying from the Netherlands perspective, just to not have it all be US focused. It was a pretty good performance from them. They took their chances well. They showed, a, you know, they will probably be pleased to have Memphis kind of Look to be, look as if he's fully fit uh, as they're re- reaching the you know the kind of key stage of this of the World Cup. They controlled the game for the most part. I think they were happy to just sort of strangle the life out of the match as it got towards the sort of last thirty minutes or so, where you know they were very happy for the U.S. to keep the ball, but they didn't feel too concerned that anything was going to happen. As it turned out, the goal that was scored was you know an absolute fluke. The U.S. had much better chances to score than the way in which they ended up scoring. And then the Netherlands responded to that pretty well by swiftly putting the game to bed 
you know, almost immediately after it was 2-1. But so the Netherlands can feel good about that performance because the U.S. are no pushovers. And as we've also seen from these knockout stages so far, I don't think there is. You know, they're not really easy games once you get to the stage of the competition anyway. But Yeah. And then, so real quick, I, I wanted to touch on the Memphis point. It angers me so much that an announcer would bring up the fact that, you know, he has Memphis on the back of his of his kit and go into the whole reason as to why he likes to be called Memphis. You know, he doesn't want to be recognized for his last name because of his father and how he left his family and this and that. And then throughout the match, they call him by his last name. Like, how as yeah. an announcer do you say that? And, uh, and then do it. Like, the... Like, come on, have common sense. It was it was very frustrating to hear them get into the whole story and be like, and I'd heard it before, but you know, you hear it and you're like, wow, that's like, it must have been pretty rough for him to, you know, really want to do that. And this must have been pretty, you know, traumatizing on his life and then not respect his wishes like five minutes later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Deli Ali had a similar one, right? And he switched to using Deli on the back of his shirt and it was kind of the same people and for very similar reasons. And, uh, and people just kept calling him Ali, you know, over the course of matches. But yeah, it's a tough one. It's also weird to me that it's it's a new. We've always permitted players from certain countries to choose which name they get go they go by. Like Ronaldo is not Ronaldo's last name, you know. Like, and we're we're fine with that. None of the Brazilians use their their last names. Some for some of them, they're not even their names. They're just like nicknames that they've developed over time. You know, and we've, we're fine with that. If you're from They're Fortnite certain, names, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you're from certain countries, we're like, no, no, that's what they do. They just pick their names at a certain point or they pick one of their 13 names and they go with that one instead, you know, and, and that's okay. But if you do it from another country, it's like, you can't, you can't do that. I always remember Blackburn used to have a player called Zereb Kishanishvili. He was from Georgia. And Kishinishvili is an incredibly long name. And he wanted just Zurab on the back of his shirt because I think Kishinishvili is something like 13, 14 characters. And he just, it, it took up the his entire back. Like they had to really curve the name. It didn't fit very well. And on top of it, he kind of jokingly always said, no one's ever going to buy my shirt because you pay for, buy the character if you buy like your favorite. <laughs> and he's like, no one's going to pay for Kishinishvili when they could pay like 10 pounds less for two guy. And uh, they wouldn't let him go by Zurab. The Premier League wouldn't allow him to do it. And I was thought that was another weird instance. It was like, because he's Georgian, they won't let it happen. If he'd been Brazilian, he would have just turned up and said, I'm, I'm Zurab. And they would have been like, cool, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't need to justify it. <laughs> so then moving on, the Netherlands will be playing Argentina this Friday with a, uh, Argentina had a 2-1 win over Australia. What do you... How do you feel about the Argentinian team after watching that? Um, you know, like I think Argentina are torn between two different approaches. They have the classical Argentinian defensive approach, which is they just don't want to concede goals and they want to sit back and they kind of want to, a one nil win for them. They, they, as soon as they go one nil up, they kind of think of that as being game over. But then they also have to handle the fact that they have Messi in their side, which means people expect something with a little bit more attacking flair than maybe the Argentinian DNA typically would deliver. Like Argentina is a country where we, when you think of the most famous Argentinian footballers, you think of Messi and Maradona and you think of this incredible attacking talent. And it's sometimes easy to think of Argentina as kind of being like Brazil where they, 
that you kind of play football in, you know, quote unquote, the right way. And they just want to be on the front foot and entertain. And the reality is that Argentinians are defensive and physical and, and that's kind of how they play football. And this Argentinian team is trying to strike a balance between those two different approaches. They're also limited because, you know, like we've spoken about it on previous podcasts, you know, like the, the, the standard approach these days is with a, a high press, the Gagan press approach where you have your attacking players closing down the opposition pretty much as soon as they get the ball and trying to kind of squeeze them into positions that they don't want to be in and win the ball higher up the pitch. That's the kind of default approach for most teams, including international teams now. Argentina can't do that with Messi because he won't, he can't run that way. They had a statistic uh, on, whether it was the BBC ahead of the Argentina match, it was the most meters walked at a walking pace um, by any player in this World Cup. And it was the top 10, and Messi was in the top five from all th- from his three performances so far through the tournament. All wow. of them were in the top five for most walking pace perf- uh, kind of meters covered. So they can't do the press with Messi. So I think I look at Argentina and see, because of that, a very beatable side and that they don't really know exactly who they are. And as a result of that, they're not as good going forward as they maybe could be. And defensively, they're also not absolutely as solid as they maybe could be. So I think every other team, it was a decent performance from them, although Australia did create some chances and particularly right towards the end could have equalized. Argentina also missed quite a few as well and and could have had the game wrapped up more easily. But of the teams from this stage, I was almost least impressed by Argentina. Yeah, I I agree completely. And I think now going into this match of Netherlands-Argentina, I pre-tournament, I would have heavily favored Argentina here. But watching both of these teams throughout the tournament, I think it's pretty even. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree with you. If you'd made me make the call, I mean, we did make this prediction, right, a couple of weeks ago. And, and we all picked Ar- Argentina. We all picked <laughs> Argentina. And I still would give the edge to Argentina. Um, but I wouldn't certainly not be surprised if the Netherlands made it through. Yeah. Uh, and then we had Japan, Croatia, which we said might have been the most or least exciting of the matchups, but it turned out to be exciting at the end as it went to penalties and uh, Japan showed that they just don't want to win a match <laughs> yeah. only to be outdone later by Spain, which we'll get to a little later. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, um, you know, Japan played well in that match and it was the match we'd kind of earmarked, right. as the most likely to have a, an upset of sorts in, and that nearly proved to be the case, but yeah, they were awful in that penalty shootout. It's one thing to miss, you know, sometimes you, you know, we've just, we spoke again, another thing we spoke, sometimes you just hit the post or the goalkeeper can pull off a fantastic save. All of those Japanese penalties were, that were saved were very savable. It was, there were penalties where it's like, well, if the goalkeeper goes the right way, you are missing this. And that's, uh, it's not a great thing to say. So uh, it's disappointing for Japan, still kind of similar to the US. I think overall, a nice World Cup from them. They probably exceeded expectations. But when you get to the knockout stages, I'm sure you're dreaming of like, well, if, 
if things go our way, who knows what can happen at this stage. And you get to a penalty shootout, it feels a little bit like a lottery, and they just didn't, they just, I mean, totally messed it up. Yeah, and Croatia will now be facing Brazil, who quite easily took care of uh, South Korea. That was uh, pretty much over 20 minutes in, five minutes in, (laughs) three minutes minutes in. 15 if you're being fair, maybe. But yeah, they they wiped the floor with South Korea. Neymar was back, which, you know, was, I think, changes the the face of yeah. Brazil. Um, and yeah, they had the, the kind of Samba style going on and everything was going right for them. And uh, yeah, I, in some ways, I guess maybe Croatia are a, pose a, a little bit of a difficult problem for Brazil because they will just sit back. They will have no... You know, Croatia will just try and absorb pressure, take a chance if they get one. Um, but And so it will be like watching a 90-minute training match, probably. And if Croatia can somehow nick a goal from a set piece or on the break or something, then who knows, a surprise could happen. But you'd just think there's just too much quality in this Brazilian team for someone like Croatia. I feel... You know, you get you always get torn in that moment of like, do you want to go toe to toe with them and it, and be like, well, we're gonna to have to beat them four three, and there are some tournament some teams in this tournament who probably will think like that if they do play Brazil, this Croatian side will not, and then we'll have to see if they can defend. They're gonna to need to defend for their lives, and they're gonna need a lot of luck because just a moment of brilliance could be their undoing. So you're gonna need a combination of great play and and good fortune. Yeah, and. My question to you, I mean, you know, you're you're well known as being plain Jane Eddie, you know, just straight plain glazed donut, no frills. Don't don't give me a lot of a lot of specialty things on a sandwich. You know, like you're you're a no frills kind of guy. What do you feel about the the Brazilian swagger? I mean, that's what they it's, it's very evident. <laughs> it's, it's very what they're f- it's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's what they're famous for. Um, I don't love the the like group dancing necessarily after every goal and every celebration taking eighteen minutes. How about when the manager jumps in and, and yeah. starts in the group dance? That bit, that bit. I but I, I'll give them credit. They do it in the first goal. You know, like they do it. This, they celebrate every goal in the same fashion. So at least it's not. They're not rubbing it in any. They come they're in consistently the, annoying. annoying. <laughs> yeah, they come into the stadium dancing. Right, they've adopted this. And and look, they probably what do they remember the Titans? <laughs> we've we've had sports psychologists on. They probably say right, it's their way of relaxing and and enjoying themselves yeah. and making sure they play the sport in the right way. You and I also had that brief discussion. I know it will rub some American sports viewers the wrong way because American sports is very big on the idea that once you see, once you believe that you have won the game, you kind of stop trying to win it. Or at least, you know, the idea of running up the score that Americans uh, have, which can get people very, very upset in American sports, doesn't exist in sports anywhere else on earth. So, now, this idea that we're 4-0 up, I guess we should stop trying to score. I actually personally find that more disrespectful because then that's really dismissive of your opponent of like, we don't, oh, no, 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 this game is over. We can stop trying to play now. Uh, and I think where the Brazilians have to be a little bit careful, it's the showboating. So Yeah, you know, that, I, I mean, that's what I was kind of more referencing was, you know, and I agree with you because, I mean, you know, when you play games and you're severely outmatched and you're down, a ton it's more annoying when the team then says like oh like we're just gonna stop trying now 
yeah. then you're just like, oh, now you're just being real assholes because you know you don't think we're even of a level that we can compete with you. So you're going to give us fifty percent. That yeah. I'm fine. Like, yeah, you can keep pushing and making effort, but you don't have to like some of the antics that were going on when you're up four goals and you're obviously clearly dominating a match don't don't need to be there. No, and, and there's a couple of players, right? Neymar has had a history of it in the past. Richarlison got in trouble in the Premier League this year when for Spurs where he started juggling the ball when they had taken the lead and stuff. And that kind of thing is going to get you told off by most non-Brazilians probably. And there's a good chance. It's a very good way. And I think in particular, if you're Neymar and you're coming into this with a sort of foot ankle injury, I'd be a little bit careful because there's a very good chance at some moment in time you you know decide to go to the corner and, and show off your skills when you're 3-0 up and you might just get a defender just thinking, you know, you might have a Croatian defender on Friday thinking, fuck this, I'll... I'll leave, you know, my tournament's over anyway. I'll leave, a, I'll leave my studs. I'll leave a nice foot impression on your ankle. We'll see how you like that. And there is a, there is a good chance of that. Um, and you, you saw it a little bit, uh, you know, you've seen it in most of these matches too. Mbappe can also kind of do it sometimes. He's a little bit of an asshole when France start to win. He, he starts doing unnecessary stepovers and things like, and you could see that it, it was getting a few of the Polish players a little bit worked up. I think that's the risk. That's why if I were one of their managers, I would be saying, guys, let's let's leave that out of there because we don't need to be getting, you know, like some player who's going to be, they're not going to care if they're suspended for their next international match in September. Like we're worried about winning a World Cup right now. So um, that would be, that would be my concern. But I, that, that part of the game I don't love, but in terms of just trying to actually keep scoring and keep attacking, that never bothers me. So South Korea, I, I think, will be, you know, slightly encouraged. They made the knockout stage, but, you know, sad to be going home. But one person who will not be so sad about this result is their striker, Cho Ji-sung, who scored two goals in their second match against Ghana, I believe, even though they lost. He apparently became an overnight sensation. His Instagram overnight went from 20,000 followers to 2.4 million. And his phone would not stop buzzing about people trying to like DM him and, and like get on a date with him that he had to turn his phone off for the tour of it because he was unable to sleep or do anything because his phone was just constantly going and, and just between the noises and dying, he had to turn off his phone and concentrate on, on football. So uh, must be pretty nice to to have that overnight stardom uh, going from twenty thousand to two point four million. That's a good. Yeah, jump. it's a pretty big. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big leap, and I'm sure life changing in terms of what that means, and from a sort of like sponsorship perspective and things. At the same time, I'd be interested to see how you maintain that. Like, are there a bunch of people who follow you? in the midst of a World Cup who a couple months later go, why am I following this weird South Korean footballer? I can't remember. And then, you know, so I'd be, I'd be interested to track how that following sort of changes over the next sort of six to 12 yeah. months. He was apparently he was getting bombarded with just marriage proposals left and right. So let's see if he... How, uh, many, how many were from you, Frank? <laughs> None. I, I missed that match. <laughs> it's on too early. <laughs> So then if we go to the other side of the bracket, you have uh, Portugal, who just uh, put a pretty good stomping to Switzerland at 6-1. to one. And uh, what do we think about 
Portugal. I mean, the, I guess the main talking point here, right, is Ronaldo did not start this match. He did come on, I think, in like the 70th minute, but yeah. did not start. And they did not seem to be lacking in scoring with him on the bench. No, and I think we mentioned it on the last podcast. They're, they're probably a better team without Ronaldo. And it's it's similar to the Messi dilemma. The, you know, if you put uh, someone in their late 30s, who's maybe not quite a... I mean, in both the cases of Messi and Ronaldo, they would have never... They wouldn't have been interested in pressing when they were 22. So they're not going to do it now. And, you know, this was always an issue for at Manchester United in terms of trying to get Ronaldo involved. It was one of the big problems that they had in terms of how they could include him in their uh, play. And Portugal have the same dilemma and obviously for this match they decided they would bring him on as a substitute and instead take an approach that allowed them to play to press and to to have a a sort of different style than they're able to have with Ronaldo I mean it went perfectly to plan in that Ramos the the Benfica striker who they decided to replace Ronaldo with and scored a hat-trick so it's going to be a difficult one for Ronaldo to argue that it was a mistake. And, you know, I, I think you're in a, Ronaldo has to accept that he's at that stage of his career where being a super sub for most matches is, is just where he's at and both at club level and international level. And he can still do an incredible job for teams at, in that role. And, you know, you definitely love to have him in the last 15 20 minutes of a World Cup match to bring on someone with that level of experience. I mean, even going things like going to a penalty shootout to know that you have the ability to bring Ronaldo on to take a penalty. That's a, a great weapon to have. Ronaldo has not. And I guess when we eventually, you know, I think that's something that the England camp has done such a good job of is taking people with big egos and having them accept their role as substitutes and rotation and that not everyone in a sense that no one is going to be the star of the show, but certainly plenty of people will not be the star of the show. Ronaldo, he's not accepting that he has to adjust his expectations. And we've seen that come, you know, causing massive problems at Manchester United. It will be over the next few days. We'll see what happens in the Portugal camp in terms of how well he takes that in terms of what messages get leaked to the press, but they laid down a marker. You know, that's scoring six goals against a Swiss team that are normally defensively extremely solid. They also have, I guess we can, they get the benefit of playing Morocco in the next round. You can sort of, I think, pencil Portugal into the semifinals and they have enough talent and experience within that side that they're not going to be easy for anyone to beat. Yeah, so you already teased maybe the the upset of the knockout stage so far. And again, we, we went through the selections and, you know, I asked, could there be uh, a spoiler here? You know, we seem to have one every round. And this this was the spoiler, a Morocco team, which I, I only watched the second half. So I don't know how that first half went, but seemed to kind of just hold on and continue to hold on and hold on. They had a few opportunities, I think, in, in the extra time. But for the most part, they were kind of just trying to not concede a goal for for most of what I saw and get to the penalties. And that's where it gets very interesting because I'm sure you saw, but the Spanish coach had come out and said that he had made all of his players take a thousand penalties during practice leading up to the World Cup. 
because I don't think it's a lottery. If you train often, then the way you take penalties improves and that he did not want to have a World Cup heartbreak. And I, I guess that strategy either backfired or they lied and didn't take the thousand penalties they said they took because that could have been the worst penalties I have ever seen <laughs> in my life. Yeah, I mean, I th- with the exception of Busquets, Busquets' penalty was decent, but it's a good save. But yeah, again, it's like the Japanese penalties. I mean, well, for starters, one of them hit the post, right, in this, for the Spanish one. So then you're not even giving yourself a chance, but they weren't good penalties. I don't think taking a thousand penalties prepares you for taking a penalty in the World Cup. You know, I don't, I mean, ultimately, I, I think the only thing that prepares you maybe, I don't think anything, I don't even think previously having taken a penalty in a World Cup shootout prepares you for taking a penalty in a World Cup shootout. You know, you, when you listen to every player who's ever taken one, how long and lonely that walk is from the halfway line to the penalty spot, you know, the sort of 30 seconds you spend when realizing exactly what that the entire weight of the your world is on your shoulders and it's something that you should do and that you almost i don't telling yourself i've scored the last thousand of these does that make it feel any easier it might mess with your head almost um you know i don't know that just some players who are obviously very very good at them and some players who aren't i think from a technique perspective um i i i think some play I would rather have a player properly put his foot through the ball and hit it with conviction. Uh, I also know that BBC did a breakdown of every penalty ever taken in a penalty shootout in the World Cup. And, you know, it told you, like, going down the middle is not the smart move. There's a much higher risk of being saved or missing if you go down the middle. But, yeah, I I don't know how you prepare properly for a, a penalty shootout in the World Cup. And so I don't think taking a thousand taking two thousand taking ten thousand you know this isn't a malcolm gladwell sort of experience you don't take ten thousand penalties and all of a sudden you'll never miss another one again but should we have malcolm gladwell on just for this specific scenario we don't talk to him about any single thing else (laughs) just the spain meltdown at the world cup yeah how many penalties (laughs) do you need to take before you won't miss a penalty again um and look this morocco team you're right they don't create a lot they have created, we spoke about XG on the, on the last podcast, uh, and I mentioned the fact that Lukaku in the second half created more goal-scoring opportunities than Morocco had in the group stages. Morocco have created less, well, fewer goal-scoring opportunities or a lower XG rating than every team at this World Cup so far, aside from Qatar. That's including the fact that they've played an extra match than half the teams in the World Cup. So... The fact that they are managing to get through is pretty remarkable. That being said, you know, their XG, so their expected goals was 0.35 from the match against Spain. Spain was only 0. Wow. Point, Spain was Spain's was only 0.61. So wow. statistically, yeah, maybe Spain should have won one nil, but really Spain created nothing. And that was what you know, I keep saying, but we mentioned it on previous episodes. The Spanish team can dominate possession, but they weren't very good at actually creating real chances, and they didn't. Sort of like the U.S., they don't have natural goal scorers in their team. And when you do then get to the knockout stages of competitions, and maybe you're only going to get that one chance, then you know that that's probably proven to be their undoing. Some of the greatest midfield players in the world in that Spanish team, but if you don't have the players to, you know, it's 
it's super pretty passing sideways and backwards and you keep 80% of the ball, but you're not really troubling all the teams by doing that. And that's, that's really what's ended up happening with them. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about the U S being one of the youngest teams. Morocco stands out in the fact that they are predominantly a non Moroccan born team. I don't know if you saw that stat, but 14 out of the 26 players on their roster are born outside of, of Morocco, born overseas, um, which is over 50%, which is pretty striking compared to, I think I saw countries like England were at about, I want to say like 5%. England have one player born outside. Raheem Sterling, so who, was born four. In, who was born in Jamaica is the only... yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't love necessarily having that as a talking point in some ways because, right, it can lead to a little bit of xenophobia and racism depending on how it gets framed. But uh, And certainly I'm not someone who's able to speak about it really because, you know, if I had become an international footballer for England, I would have been uh, an Englishman born in France with an American accent. So, yeah. you know, No, like- I, I don't mean it from that sense, but I mean it from the sense that there are obviously some players on there that probably have dual citizenship that chose yeah. to play for them because maybe they had an easier opportunity to make that team versus making, let's say, the French national team. Yeah, as I said, I, it's 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 those are difficult topics to discuss without coming into potentially racist or xenophobic uh, hot topics because. You know, without speaking to each player on a you know one by one basis, over why did you choose to represent Morocco? Was it because it was the most realistic opportunity for you to play international football? Was it because your parents are Moroccan and that's where you feel your you know like I can speak for myself? I would have never represented France at football. You know, France could call me up tomorrow and I would tell them no. You know, so oh, they... I do not buy that for a <laughs> second. It's that true. The biggest lie I've ever heard. Speaking from the guy who represented France in cricket, <laughs> that was different, though. But... No, 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 no. I just called you out so bad right there. <laughs> that was different. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, look, if they called me up, it was tomorrow, different because you actually made the team. The, if they called me up tomorrow, then I would because I'd sabotage them on on Saturday. So in this instance. I would accept. I would accept the call up if they need a late Benzema replacement. I will. I will fly to Qatar, and tr- I trust me. I'm. I've never missed a penalty. Just in case it gets to those stages, they can sub me on. But what do you think's closer, Ali, with his resemblance physically to Giroud, or you with your abilities to Benzema? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, probably Ali. <laughs> Wow. I thought you were going to be super confident. If you'd asked me that question 15 years ago, you would have got a different answer. But no. Uh, yeah, I, 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 as I said, it's a difficult one. But but no, it's impressive for Morocco. They are the, as Americans like, the kind of the Cinderella story of this World Cup then. The only real surprise from the, from the last 16. And I guess they're in a, some respects they're the only team who could be the real surprise in the quarterfinals now, because every other team in the quarterfinals, if well maybe Croatia beating Brazil would would really surprise people, but I think any result out of Argentina Netherlands won't surprise people. Uh, any result out of England France, you know, won't really surprise people, and so it's it's really whether or not Morocco can upset the apple cart with against Portugal. 
And then getting into our last quarterfinal matchup, you have uh, France with a 3-1 win over Poland. I thought France looked pretty strong in this. Yeah, I think they until did. I saw Brazil, I honestly thought they were the best team I had seen. Yeah, I think, look, so much of the analysis of matches is determined by the outcome, right? And France were very, very good, particularly in that second half. But going back to the sort of importance of the miss from Pulisic in the U.S. game, Poland had a remarkable chance to score when they had the three attempts from sort of within seven or eight yards against France. And at that point of the game, the match was, you know, France were on top, but they weren't creating a lot. And Poland were doing a good enough job of getting forward. And they missed that chance. And then not that long later, they were 1-0 down. And it was kind of game over from there because that, you know, the Polish game plan was similar to, I guess, what Croatia will be like going against Brazil. It's like, we'll we'll sit deep, we'll try and keep this tight, and we'll hope to snatch a goal on the break or, or from a set piece. And if you go 1-0 down, how do you do you throw all of that completely out? You know, do you hope to still snatch a goal to have it be the equalizer? You know, like, how do you... How aggressive do you suddenly become in response to going behind? So I think it's easy to look at how in control France were for the majority of that second half, how dominant Mbappe was in particular, and say, wow, that was an incredible performance. But they could have been 1-0 down, and that could have been a very different scenario. And I think every team that was left... You're never going to keep Mbappe completely out of a match. He he poses too many problems. Um, Dembele, if he plays well, but he blows hot and cold. Who knows which version of Dembele you're going to get? Barcelona have suffered from that now for the last year. I, if I'm going to put my optimistic England hat on, too bad you already have your optimistic Cleveland <laughs> Indians hat on. But if I put my optimistic England hat on. France also have the same problem in terms of the press because of Giroud. He can't he can't press play people all the time. Doesn't have the pace, yeah. doesn't have the fitness. I mean, one thing we know he's similar to Ali and he's slow. So, <laughs> so you know, England will not be fa- like obviously Mbappe will press it will close them down, Dembele will close them down, but they have to do like situational pressing in a way that England for example don't. England can just press all game long. France have to be much more strategic because they can't get Giroud to press. So they have to get one of their wide players or one of their deeper midfielders to, to kind of come up with that press. That's a little bit more complicated. And it does mean if you beat the press, they are far more exposed because, you know, like Harry Kane pressing or Harry Kane dropping deep into a role he's comfortable with and an, a wider playing pressing, like England do not expose themselves. France can expose themselves. If you can get by that press on the left or the right-hand side, you have an opportunity then to, to kind of create a chance against them. Also, Griezmann's been fantastic in this World Cup, but we're talking about an attacking midfielder who's who's playing a completely new role because of injuries to Pogba and Kante and is playing as a central midfielder. And he has been great, and Rabiot has been great. But if that were an England team, like that's the equivalent of us getting to a World Cup and <laughs> and suddenly asking, you know, Raheem Sterling to be a central midfielder. And yeah, he's had some good performances against Australia, you know, or, you know, whoever you want to name from their group stage performances. Let's, let's now face a real test. You know, the next 
three matches for them are not going to be mediocre international players. They're going to be tested against very, very good, very experienced midfielders. That's cause for concern for France. And as I said, I don't. I still think they're favorites, rightfully so, to beat England. I expect them to make the World Cup final. I think I, I can't see them winning all three matches for those reasons. And I also think there's this kind of Mbappe love fest going on post that match. Uh, I, I'd say on his first goal, Chesney, Chesney will be disappointed that he was bitten on his near post. I think that as a goalkeeper, you just shouldn't have that happen. So the Mbappe's second goal is fantastic. Uh, like Mbappe is very good, but people talk about it as if it's like, oh, he just scores multiple goals every match. Like it's inevitable. England can't even try and stop him. He he'll score whenever he wants to score. He'll score. Like plenty of teams have, for both PSG and France, have managed to solve the Mbappe equation. It's again, he's an extremely good player. It will take a little bit of luck and some very good defending, and it'll be interesting to see whether Southgate switches. England have played with a back four this whole World Cup. I think expectations are that they'll shift to a back five only because of Mbappe. So what they'll then try and do is they'll put Kyle Walker on the right-hand side of three central defenders so that he can cover Mbappe, provide additional support, and you'll have Trippier there as a right back to more of a wing back, but also there to have kind of be different. Be Kyle defensive. Walker's wingman, <laughs> exactly, and that between so, the two I, between the two of them, that they might be able to solve the Mbappe equation. But it worries me that so much of the focus is on like how do you stop Mbappe and not how do you expose France's weaknesses because they have weaknesses of their own. Yeah, so I guess the first one we'll get onto is the the Kyle Walker situation, and you know everywhere I'm reading now is he's like he's the hope right is, is Kyle Walker he has the speed he has the the toughness to stay with Mbappe yeah. my question here is he's coming off of I guess building up his fitness right and in that Senegal match would you have liked to see him maybe be subbed off a little early give him some rest or are you more encouraged that he got a full game under him and that he can come out better from that I mean, there, I think you trust the, you know, sports science team and the physiotherapists that are working with him. And that obviously all of those players are so carefully monitored in terms of when they hit certain limits that mean that they need to be subbed off and stuff. So you'd have to trust that they're managing that in the right way. And I guess if assuming that they are, then it's probably encouraging that he plays as many minutes as he did, because that's a sign that he's not limited and he's not going to go into this France match needing to be subbed off. I guess that's the encouraging sign. Still, he's recovering from surgery and from an injury, and I don't think he's quite at full speed. So Kyle Walker is very confident when you listen to him speak that he <laughs> can. He feels like when Man City played PSG that he has handled uh, yeah. uh, Mbappe extremely well. But he might be a step or two slower, given the current situation, than he was in those situations, and that might mean that, you know, he needs the extra help. I mean, Mbappe looked so fast on some of those goes. He, they clocked him, I think, at like twenty-two miles per hour. And the really annoying part of that whole thing was then they equated that out to what that would be in a forty-yard dash, and they were like, "That means he would be running a 40 yard dash." But the whole point of a forty-yard dash is how quickly can you accelerate from a stop? Like, yeah, I bet you if you took the guys 
who run four two 40 yard dashes and took their top end speed, they probably run 3.5 40 yard dashes if you put them at top speed. But that's like, that's, that's like not the point of, I hate when people do stupid things like that just to make it sound so like bombastic, but it's like, no, that's just that, that doesn't correlate. It doesn't make sense. Um, but no, still, no, I, mean, I mean, you could tell he was like, no, like there was two where he just blew by defenders in like seven steps. <laughs> no, he, he has world-class speed for any sport. I mean, this is where also Americans, when they have that, like, oh, if our best athletes played, Mbappe is world-class speed he, he, in anything. You know, Mbappe probably could have been an incredible wide receiver in the NFL if he'd wanted to, you know, or, or a corner, or he could have been a sprinter. You know, like you look at him, uh, Matty Cash, who was the... Uh, Polish right back tasked with marking Mbappe said he'd never seen anything as fast as Mbappe in that match. And he spoke about one of the things that's so tough with Mbappe and you can watch him do it time and time again over the course of matches is he stops. So I actually will say in slight disagreement to you, like how do you extrapolate his speed, his straight line speed, because he's not coming from a stationary position. Actually what Mbappe does so incredibly well. And the thing that causes defenders so much trouble is that he actually comes to a complete stop with the ball because what he knows is that if he can get the defender to stop, which they sort of have to do if he does is that's where his speed is such a huge advantage. And you can watch him. He's going to do it to Walker. He's going to do it to everyone he plays over the course of this World Cup. He kind of gets the ball. He's sort of angled facing into the towards the goal, and he will come to a complete standstill. And then he goes. And But again, Matty Cash is a d- decent defender who's, you know, plying his trade currently for Aston Villa and is all right. But Matty Cash is not Kyle Walker. He's not Kieran Trippier. So again, all these people losing their minds over, I would expect Kylian Mbappe to be faster than everyone on the Polish team. You know, that's not, that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. It's not news to me, but it's not racist. I know you just pointed at me. It's not news to me. But. um, So the other question I had was, did you look or have you seen the, you know, Mr. XG, did you see the XGs from both of these matches? I saw England's XG. So I saw this, I mean, England over the course of this tournament, right, have been incredibly efficient in their taking their chances. So I think they've scored. So they were 1.95 versus Senegal at a 0.92. Yeah. And I think overall England have scored 12 goals in the tournament and their expected goals outcome is something between six and seven. So, so they are super efficient. (laughs) Yes. Scoring. And, France was actually 1.22 versus Poland at 1.8. And this is the thing, you know, so many ice. And again, I think England will lose and it's hard to ditch the just overall pessimism of being an England supporter in terms of the expectation of failure. But I have tried to, I've had some of my friends who then out of that say, oh, there's no way we beat that France team. It's like, well, if Poland are creating chances, England will create chances. You know, like that's, these are two teams filled with world-class players and England could very well lose. England could even lose badly. At the same time, I think Fran- England could beat France badly. If things could get out of hand for France, this could be 3-0, England 3-0 up after 60 minutes. It could also be England 3-0 down after 60 minutes. When you get two very good teams going against each other, it's kind of impossible to dismiss any any outcome. Um, and I guess in the analysis of that England-Senegal game, which we, we then haven't really sort of mentioned specifically, Senegal were, were the better team for periods of that first half, I'd say from about the 10th minute till England scored, they were the, they were on top. 
not not dramatically, but they were on top. Pickford made a very big save to keep it nil-nil. And then once England scored that goal, it was game over. I mean, they just, the second one came quickly. It sort of seemed to give England confidence within the match that they didn't have maybe at the beginning. And they, they got their swagger going. All of a sudden, they could hit hit France and, you know, uh, hit France, hit Senegal on the break. Easily, you, you got, you know, Foden really coming into the match. You had, you know, Saka becoming extremely involved. Yeah, so, like, that was the worst I've seen a team just really wanting the whistle at the end of that first half as Senegal did. I mean, you could just tell. They were just like, someone blow this goddamn whistle. Let's get out of here. This is this is not getting – this is getting worse by the second. Um, and it was, it was interesting because I actually – this match started noon my time, and I had a hockey game at noon as well. But it's a lower league, so I don't really play that. Like I play like 50%, 60%. So I popped in a headphone and put, put the match on my phone on the bench and then played the first, I think it was the first two periods until halftime. Uh, with like listening to it in one ear as it went. Oh, what are you? What are you Brazilian? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And it was really funny because, like, I honestly was really not paying attention to the hockey I was playing. But what was funny is at one point when Maguire had that pretty bad turnover that almost led to to a goal. It was yeah. the exact same moment. I think I was listening to it and then he turned it over and I, got, I was like, oh shit. And then I turned the puck over at the same time and they scored. And then I went back to the bench and he was like, why are you laughing? And I was like, oh, it's just really funny because like England just almost turned the ball over and scored. And then like it got me riled up and I turned it over. <laughs> so it was actually pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. And not not smart to do that while you're trying to play a sport in focus. No, probably not. But no, I, you know, and and so it's similar to me. You know, the first goal, the same. If, if Senegal had taken that chance, particularly from that Pickford, that very good strong left hand that he had, which bailed Saka out because Saka went to sleep uh, to to kind of allow us. Yeah, to that put, was a bad put, one too. To put Senegal in, but that's a was a you know a great save from Pickford, a very very strong hand. Um, you you would say that, uh, you know, the game could have been different. And England, Eng- pessimistic England fans will be like, well, look, it could, Senegal probably should have scored in the same way. But I don't hear a lot of France fans saying, well, Poland should have scored. You know, like it's, it, it does re- it's a revealing difference in the mentality, which I think what I will say is I don't see within the camps. I feel like every England team I've ever watched before has felt that way about themselves at all times. Like, wow, the, others, the other team should have scored or... I feel like this is genuinely the first England team I have ever watched that thinks they can win a World Cup. Genuinely believes it. That doesn't mean but that they you, won't. Eddie. I think they can. I'm not gonna I don't think they will right now, but I think they can. And but I, I, I really believe, even compared to the you know, the golden generation of the sort of early two thousands that they had, I don't think they thought they could win it. And when you now the more and more you hear about the these retired players talking about what the mentality was like playing for England in that era, it's clear that they did not think that. They felt the pressure, they felt the weight of the expectations, they didn't have total confidence in each other. There were sort of you know sort of different groups within within the camp who didn't like each other and things. This England team, you just hear it oozing from them in terms of their confidence and you see it on the, and, and in particular, when you see the ability of some of those young players to step up 
everyone's raving about similar like the takeaway from the France game was how unbelievable Kylian Mbappe was the takeaway from the England Senegal game was how unbelievable Jude Bellingham is at 19 and it is true to see a 19 year old like the confidence he has the composure just the way he carries himself does not look like a 19 year old playing in a world his first world cup yeah did you see the composure when Henderson tried to kiss him in celebration? <laughs> he just was, stood his ground. He just said, that, that is composure. Any other 19-year-old, when a, when a grown man comes at you to try and kiss you to celebrate, they back away. But he just stood and stood his ground. Impressive. That was, that was an odd celebration, especially when viewed in slow motion. And for a second, I thought maybe they were trying to, maybe it was a political statement they were making. You know about LGBTQ rights in uh, Qatar, and they were going to make out after every England goal from now on. I'd be fully on board with that as a celebration slash protest. But uh, no, I mean, I think I, I give. I think France. You know, when you look at it from an odds perspective, France are like the slight favorites in terms of who will qualify. I think that's correct. You are talking about reigning world champions, talking about a team full of players who've been there, done that when it's come to this, and that does matter. And Who've probably well, let's shown. save your predictions though for for next podcast. Don't I know, but don't I'm, spoil everything, Eddie. I'm not, but I'm just saying that I do think that they are the edge. But I also got England fans who are kind of giving England no chance against France, and that's insane. Like it's yeah. insane. Like there's no reason to go into this with total pessimism. But that's the English way, Eddie. It is, and and it's based on not having won anything since 1966. You know, like multiple generations watching failure after failure. And as I said, like this, I think there's two things to say. There's probably three elements to this, I would say. There's a confidence within the camp that feels different. We're also forgetting that this is an England team coming off the back of losing a World Cup semifinal, losing a Euros final, and now is in a World Cup quarterfinal. Like just on recent, this team's accomplishments, that's a little different to already. That's two achievements I've not seen in my lifetime in terms of England playing in a World Cup semifinal and England playing in a, Euro, a European final. And those were two firsts for me. So there's no reason to not expect more firsts from them. And then, you you, you know, you just... I, there, you know, there's got to be a, at a certain moment in time, st- stop expecting the failure and, and think like, that. Yeah, they're as good as anybody. So why not? Why not us? which I think is a question sometimes sports teams ask themselves, right? When you get start to get to the later stages, like start stop looking at everyone else you need to be afraid of and, and start asking yourselves, why, why can't we win? Why aren't they afraid of our players? Like, why aren't other teams looking at Harry Kane thinking, oh, maybe he's got his first goal, could be more to come. He's also creating a ton of chances. Like, every wide player they put on the pitch scores a goal. You know, like there's there's lots of reasons to be optimistic, but I still expect them to lose. Great butt at the end there. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll preview this next uh, quarterfinal round and our next podcast, uh, which starts Friday. Yeah. So that podcast will... quarterfinal is not our podcast. No, but our pod- our next podcast will be out before Friday. So people will get our full preview before all of that kicks off. From the World Cup, I think we can switch to the NFL where, you know, you're very anxious and nervous about England. But are you more anxious and nervous about losing one of the greatest QBs in the NFL, Jimmy G, one of the and best now looking. going to, quote unquote, Mr. Irrelevant, which is very annoying that they keep calling Purdy Mr. Irrelevant. Um, 
Brock Purdy, who was the draft pick last year, the last pick of the draft, is which is why he's called Mr. Irrelevant, for those who don't know, uh, who played pretty decently. I thought he was good. I guess it's another one. Sometimes, you know, similar to when you're looking at the messaging coming out of the England camp, kind of you got to try and read the waters in the in the, in the Niners camp and see what all those players are saying. And look, they know that they need to be positive and you're a good team, so you want to come out and say good things. But every single player, offense, defense, every coach has come out and said, no, we know this guy can play. He's extremely confident. We have absolute faith in him. We were super impressed by how he just came in and, and seemed, seemed composed, executed, called timeouts at Did the right s- time. Did you see George Kittle said for the first four weeks of preseason, he thought Purdy was actually Trey Lance during <laughs> practice? No, but I mean, there's, you know, there's, I, you know, obviously, you're I mean, due. so, so I think, I mean, I think, yeah, he, he looked good, but I think the Niners just have such a good system in place that it's not so much plug and play. I think that's, that's doing a disservice to to Jimmy G, who actually has played pretty well this season. But they're a run-focused team. They have many weapons. They have many options of kind of short, pick you apart, down the field kind of options, and then spring a big play off of a reverse, off of a nice screen pass, things like that, where you don't rely on, you know, we'll get into Tom Brady. You're not relying on a quarterback to literally take over a game to win you a game in the final three minutes. They are set up very differently. They're defense first, run first, and then if we need to at the very end, maybe we can get the passing game going. No, I mean, I think they're always trying to get the passing game going. But you're right that the, they're not looking for big plays downfield from the passing game. They're like It's the Kyle Shanahan mode, right, is yards after the catch. It's actually what the Dolphins have sort of also tried to implement, although they have the Yak. Yeah, they also have the Tyreek Hill threat, but the and you know Waddle and stuff. So it's a little bit different, but fundamentally, like it's a big emphasis on getting receivers in like with running room, and and almost kind of blurring the lines between your run game and your pass game. And yeah, they're, they're probably the only contender who you could say could afford to lose their starting quarterback without immediately not becoming a contender. Like I, I don't think like the Bills lose Allen. Their Super Bowl hopes are gone. The Chiefs lose Mahomes. Super Bowl hopes are gone. Hey, Ravens lost Lamar Jackson this week, and it almost <laughs> shot their playoff chances. Yeah, no, I mean, like every maybe the only team, maybe the Dolphins with Tua, you could say they could. I I think Tua is really good. Wow, wow, what a knock on Tua, who has the best QBR in the NFL right now. But they've been good without Tua, too. You know, like, I, I still feel like, and they've got so many offensive weapons that it's possible that they could adapt. I, I think Tua is more important to what the Dolphins do than Jimmy G was to what the Niners do. But, and, and like, it's, he came in, he was, he looked, he didn't look like some rookie making his first appearance. You know, he, that was, and that was up against a good defense, too. It wasn't as if he wasn't playing the Houston Texans and looked all right. Like, he was playing a team that's likely to be in the playoffs that most people consider to be a Super Bowl contender. And in addition to their offense being, as you described, I mean, they've, they've only, it's only been once this season where and the other opposition have scored 20 points or more against them. 
And that was the Kansas City Chiefs. So in a sense, you get to go into the game as the Niners quarterback thinking, if I can get to 21 points, we've won this game. And that's also a difference because it's not like stepping into some teams where you think, I need 300 plus yards. I need 35 points. I need four passing touchdowns. Like I need to be great. It's really a case of don't mess up and you probably win the game. And you might even be able to mess up once. Like we can probably, we can survive a pick six, just not multiple picks, not multiple, you know, turnovers. So I do think that's different, but sure, it reduces their chances. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, again, they're all talking about Purdy as if like we kept him here. He was great in college. We kept him here for the, the reason why he stayed on the roster is because we were so impressed by him. Everyone on the team loves him. It'll be interesting to see what roster moves they make in terms of whether that's Baker Mayfield or whoever being added to the team at least as a backup, because right now I think they, they brought Josh Johnson back on. But yes, you need some, you probably not don't want Josh Johnson starting a playoff game for you. So Jimmy G, they say, is going to not require surgery, it looks like, and will be out about seven to eight weeks. So he might be back in time for playoffs, which would be encouraging. I think, we, I think he's done. Ah, the reports today, this just came out this afternoon, said that they are encouraged so he could make a, r- a run for playoffs. But here's the thing is, in what scenario do you bring him back? In any scenario, because at the end of the day, who cares if he gets hurt again? You've got Trey Lance sitting back there next year. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I don't mean because of you care about Jimmy G's future, although that might be reasons for him not to not want to come back this season because yeah. he wants to sign a contract with someone uh, next I agree year. with that. <laughs> I mean more from if the wheels haven't come off this season, you're going to change your quarterback? Like if, if Purdy... Uh, well, I- yeah, let's let's let okay. I agree. Let's give Purdy a few games. I mean, this could have just been no. A I'm not saying no, 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 no. I'm not phenomenal. projecting that they're not going to lose a game again. My point is more. So what? You go into the second round of the playoffs, and you've had a quarterback who's looked decent. I'm a because either Purdy looks okay between now and the rest is, or they're signing someone else, right? Like it's Baker Mayfield or it's somebody coming in. Like they're not just going to give Purdy enough room to hang himself and then just keep going. Uh, and So let's say you bring in Baker Mayfield. Then if Jimmy G is available in the playoffs, you're going to stick with Baker Mayfield. Have they won a play? Is he there back? Is he, have they won a playoff game? Give me the different scenarios. Well, let's see if you have seven teams, the top three get buys right now, they're scheduled for a buy. So there's an opportunity that he might come in that first playoff game. What record? Let's go through the different... Okay, give me the Purdy record between now and the end of the season. And then the playoffs are... Start, the Niners are playing their first playoff game and Jimmy G is... They're like, what? Eight and four now, right? Yeah. So there's five games left? Uh, yes. Let's say they go three and two. I keep Purdy. Wow. Unless it's a losing record from here on out. Okay, so let's let's just... Bucks, Seahawks, Commanders, Raiders, Cardinals. So you'd say, looking at that on paper, very difficult to Oof. imagine them losing against the Cardinals. The Bucks would be a tough defensive matchup again for Purdy. <laughs> That's where he, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a big test. This is going to be a big test. Mentally, too, you, even if they will get on to that, but you're still going up against Tom Brady, too. Your first career yeah. 
NFL start is going to be against the greatest quarterback of all time. Like that's, um, you know, that's a, a mental challenge, even if the Bucks only scored 15 points a game. But I don't know that that could be that could finish two zero. That could be the Niners got a safety, <laughs> and that was game over. Yeah, I, I I still think if come the first round of the playoffs, they say Jimmy G is scheduled to return. I put him in. But also, what health? Like you know, like how healthy? Because. You just had to think, I think you risk pissing off players in the team. Like, wait, we brought a 60% healthy Jimmy G back. Then he was fucking catastrophic in the playoffs because he hadn't played football in several weeks. His foot isn't right. He couldn't move around the pocket. We were just watching him get sacked and sacked and sacked. And that's what you fucking did to us when we had the best overall roster in the NFL. This is what you did to us? I think you run that risk. You could go the other way and say... You you started a rookie who is the last pick of the draft in a playoff game. I don't think where you get... is it's it's over his. I I definitely think. Let, let's look at the type of games that someone like Tua has played in college, versus the type of games that Joe Purdy has played in college. I don't think where he was selected in the draft is going to be big. Is going to be the argument, because anyone who does that is like, wait, so what's that? Two sixty six, and what was Brady? 190 something. Okay. I'm no, but I mean the 1%. <laughs> I, I just mean overall. What, what I'm saying is it's I think he's the question not is a highly highly touted. Don't give pick. a shit. Don't give a shit. I think the question is is rookie or not. <laughs> Crazy. No, it's rookie or not. It's like experience okay. levels. It's not where were you drafted? Cuz if you do that, you're going to fuck your team in the long run because you're going to asking you like, "Well, why are we trusting this guy? He you know like George Kittle wasn't taken, you know, was, you know, like you're going to go through the, the roster and be like, well, this guy was only taken in the fifth round. Why are we trusting him now? Like, I think there's rookie elements, but if he shows over the five games enough, I don't think you drop him. Or if Baker Mayfield or whoever else it is comes in, plays a couple of games and looks okay. Like, I don't want a less mobile version of Jimmy G. That sounds disastrous. Jimmy G already takes five sacks a game that he shouldn't take. If he could just move slightly or just decided to get rid of the ball. Yeah. the idea of him coming back from a broken foot and then, and comp- like compounding those ex- pre-existing issues. It sounds like that sounds like a disaster. So I hope that I, I never see Jimmy G playing for the Niners again. Wow. I can't believe this. I can't believe you're going to ride with the 20th best rookie QB in a playoff game. Versus Jimmy G, who's no. won playoff games before and has had a decent season. No, Frank, I'm going to ride with the best rookie QB who was picked 20th. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. This could be the end of Trey Lance if Purdy maybe, makes a run. Maybe. And I want to be on record as the podcast that called it. Like, like we'll be the Purdy Pod from now on. We'll just be, you know, so that you know, like Tom Brady has that wall of the six QBs chosen before him and stuff. I want to have Purdy to have the same thing, but then on the other wall, he'll have just a big chill podcast sort of poster as the one podcast who believed in him from day one. <laughs> and I'm going to stick up for my boy Tua here, who you said is replaceable. 
three of the four Dolphins losses were the three games Tua did not play. So, so don't tell me he's replaceable. <laughs> you still see what I mean. Tell me a, a contender who you think the drop-off would be less. That's the question. I'm not saying there's no drop-off from Tua. I'm saying I they could lose Tua and I don't immediately dismiss the Dolphins. Every other contender, if you take their starting quarter, like the Chiefs have no chance of winning without Patrick Mahomes. The Bills have no chance of winning without Josh Allen. Jets. It, they have no chance of winning. That's <laughs> <laughs> They're in a Pat- playoffs right now. It's Patrick Mahomes <laughs> becoming the quarterback. If Titans? I don't really give – I don't consider the Titans a contender. But, yeah, I guess if you want to somehow call them a contender. Cowboys? Cooper Rush came in and played well. I still think you see a dramatic difference between the Cooper Rush experience versus the Dak Prescott experience. Ooh, the Cooper Rush experience. Great band name. <laughs> but then, yeah, maybe as one of our other major talking points last night, Monday Night Football, a little bit of a snooze fest for 85%, 90% of the game. Um, no offense really on offer from either team. Tom Brady looked every year, you know, like every bit his age. Throughout it, Man. they struggled to move the ball. They had one. They had a good drive to open things up, and then they basically didn't have a good drive again until they till the very end. But then, in the final five minutes, flicked a switch, and vintage Tom Brady was back. Yeah. So, so the first talking point I have is the talking point of had that not happened, I was going to come on here. And not really as a joke, but as a, as a sincere question, how much did Tom Brady regret coming back this year in terms of it probably played a large part in his marriage divorce. It, the team is miserable. He looks miserable out there. He's fighting. He's screaming at coaches. He's screaming at players. They lose that game. I honestly think Tom Brady goes home and says, man, I think I really fucked up coming back this year. I don't know. I think from an outsider's perspective, it's so hard to say, right? I doubt he got divorced solely because he wanted to keep playing in the NFL. I'm, I'm know, not, like, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying that, but it, it wasn't going well and it wasn't looking well. Like you were saying, he did not look well. That offense looked brutally boring. Yeah, they, look, they look really bad. <laughs> But their defense looks great, and, and it's a weird thing. Even if they'd lost, I would have still expected them to make the playoffs. And then you're still getting Tom Brady in a playoff game with a really great defense. So do I think they're going to win the Super Bowl? No. Do I think they'll probably lose in the first round of the playoffs? Probably. But you're still, you know, if you're him, I mean, like, it's, it's a little similar to the Niners equation. What do you need, 20 points? Unless it's against the Chiefs or the Bills, 20 points. And, or maybe and the Eagles. Maybe the Eagles. You know, like the Niners, you know, we'll see this obviously on Sunday, like we said, but they would say, oh, what, what if we play the Niners in the, in the playoffs? If we can get to 15, maybe we win that 15-14, 15-13. You know, who, who, who knows? So, What's the over-under on the Niners-Bucks game? I'm assuming you haven't looked. What's have, your guess? Oh, do you want me to guess or do you want you're the overs guy? Do you want to guess or do you want me to guess? Let's both guess because I haven't looked either. Okay, my guess would be 
41.5. My guess is way lower. 35. Okay. 37. <laughs> That's crazy. That's for, so low in the NFL right now. <laughs> yeah, so for context for people who are not certain of where that stands, actually the Ravens-Steelers is also 37, so there's... Projected to be well. Two. That's because uh, if Lamar doesn't come, then yeah. I don't. I don't think they're going to score many. But aside from that, nothing is else is in the thirties. The next lowest is forty one point five, which is Jags Titans. So, kind of you go yeah. you go up against a run heavy Titans team. That's kind of to be that's to be expected a little bit, right? But no, I mean it was, and the other talking point that you and I both mentioned. And we're not alone in these thoughts, but we both mentioned over the course of that game is that there seems to be a shift in how efficient their offense is from when it's Todd Bowles and whoever else it is calling Leftwich. Let Brian uh, Byron Leftwich calling plays versus in either two minute warning situations or in like real hurry up offense situations where it switches to uh, Brady. Because I think from all the reports, right? Contrasted with his experience in the Patriots, he has very he has very little influence even on the field in terms of making it's like the audibles that he's able to call. It's much more limited in the approach that this Tampa Bay's this Tampa Bay offense has compared to with what he would have experienced at with the Patriots. And you notice, I mean, they look like two different teams when suddenly he gets to call the Tom Brady offense. This the play calling is completely different style of plays they're running it suddenly looks like oh yeah those are the throws tom brady would want to make versus the rest of the time it's like yeah, yeah i don't think tom brady has ever liked those throws but definitely doesn't like them at 45 yeah it, it was a no, very noticeable difference and he obviously seems way more comfortable when he when he's calling the plays and i think it's what you were saying i don't think it's necessarily he's more comfortable because he's more confident in that play but he's more comfortable because he's making the play calls that he knows he can make those throws you, you, you know like it's it's an easier throw for him to make or it's it's the throw he's made a million times i don't need to see him overthrow another wide receiver 35 yards downfield like <laughs> we we get it at this point he whether that's timing, whatever it is, he's not getting those. Like, you're not stretching the defense by basically punting the ball from Tom Brady's hand downfield, like once every drive. Like, there's no need for this. Yeah, it was a noticeable difference, but it was it was fun to watch. And I I wondered, as say you went to that game, do you leave that game feeling happy you went to that game? Or more like, more like, man, that game really sucked, but I guess at least they won in the end. <laughs> no, I think it's the magic of sports, right? Is that a fantastic ending covers up for the rest of it being absolute shit. Like the... Even the, on a Monday night where you're probably not getting home then till like oh, two in the morning, you're, you're, gotta you're just, wake up for work in four hours. You're, you're amped <laughs> sitting in your car. You're like, oh, I got to see a flashback to what Tom, what the Tom Brady, you know, would have used to look like in New England. I got to see Tom Brady break the record for the most fourth quarter comebacks in a in a, in a quarterback's career. That was his forty fourth fourth quarter comeback. So he, you know, gets another Tom Brady record there. 
you know, all these things, I think you're delighted. You might even say to yourself, that might be the last Tom Brady fourth quarter comeback we ever see. And I was there for it. I probably don't think that's true because I think Tom Brady's going to play till he's 50. But, you know, that's, I think you're pleased. Because I, I can say as someone who stayed up until five in the morning to watch it and who regretted that decision for 92, 93% of the game, I even, I said to you, oh, I'm glad I stayed up to watch this now. Like that made it worthwhile. The rest of it, I was like, what am I doing? This is going to finish 13 to three. It's going to be a ton of incomplete passes, a ton of like three yard runs and a ton of punts. And this is all I've stayed up to watch. The only other game I really wanted to touch on a little was the Bengals Chiefs. Now that the Bengals have won three in a row over the Chiefs, including that playoff uh, matchup. A slightly confusing game as to how the Chiefs didn't win that. At every point, I thought the Chiefs were going to win. And you had a point where they were up four and they were driving and Kelsey fumbled around, I guess, what? That had been like the 50-yard line-ish? No. Yeah, yeah, back to 50. Um, Which was obviously a turning point because then Burrow got the ball, went down the field, I think it was like seven for eight, and scored to go up. And then when the Chiefs got the ball back, they missed that field goal. Maybe it's just unfortunate, you know, and nine times out of 10, Kelsey doesn't fumble that and they go probably drive down the field, score, go up 11 and win that game. But is, are you slightly concerned that a team like the Bengals, who probably will make the playoffs now, kind of has their number? Is this something that do you think the Chiefs are affected by like a team having their number? Are they that type of team? I get the impression that they are not, but I do think the Bengals are affected by the fact that they think they have something over the Chiefs. And so whether or not that impacts the Chiefs is one thing, but I think from the Bengals' perspective that they can go into games being like, oh yeah, we're, yeah, these these guys might be the best team, but we have them. Like we, we know how to beat them. We know that. They get the Super Mario mushroom boost. Yeah. And I think that matters. That's why it's kind of surprised me. Like, I did feel like this was going to be a statement win from the Chiefs. Like, hey, we know you. We've had some disappointing performances against you recently. You knocked us out of the playoffs last year. Like, all these things. This is that we're going to just, we're going to really put lay down a statement here and kind of in the process could have really made the Bengals' playoffs hopes look a bit more complicated. You know, now the thing, yeah, now I have to, I've been dismissive of the Bengals at some points over the course of this season. And now it kind of feels reminiscent of the Bengals last year, where second half of the season, they're kind of starting, things are starting to get rolling for them. And they're, they're going to be a difficult out in the playoffs now. Yeah. And we both discussed the Chiefs decision at the very end of that. Uh, they were at fourth and seven with 320 left on the Cincy 37 uh, down three, and they decided to kick a 55-yard field goal. Butker is a good kicker, and I don't doubt he can make that, but you're now talking at night in the cold in Ohio versus Patrick Mahomes who seems to on plays like that, like a fourth and whatever 
that's his wheelhouse. And with 3.30 left, I don't know why you kick it. I'd rather they have gone for it. And if you go for it and you miss it, you're kind of in the same boat, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we've spoken about, I, I mean, the, the killer there is the sack. And he had someone open on the left. He yeah. could have picked up the first down. He was trying to do that but Mahomes it, play. And it like, was also a nice, it was a nice tackle though, too, because it looked nice like tackle. he was going to get it. Yeah. It looked like he was getting through. He's a step away from the classic Patrick Mahomes picks up 10 yards and all of a sudden yeah. they're in the red zone or whatever. And, you know, like we've seen this a million times before from the Chiefs. It's like, oh, we nearly had him in the backfield. And instead they've got, you know, first and 10 from our 25. But, I still the killer is a sack. I think if you know you're going to kick the field goal, I I would have preferred they run the ball on the previous down, and then say you know. But in the end, you you know you lost a handful of yards, and then you make him, then you make the field. You know, like I, I think if you know, I would have then in that instance you run the ball on the previous down, and then and then try and kick the field goal. Or you then put yourself in a situation like, well, now it's fourth and one. So now we'll go for it on fourth down. But because you ended up fourth and seven, it's a little bit trickier to go for it because it's you kind of rule out the possibility of a run play. And you know you, you kind of simplify what the defense then has to do. But I, I probably would have gone for it. But it is so much outcome-based analysis because if he kicks the field goal, it's a tied game. And then you're like, okay, that's all See, right. but I don't like that, though, because I'll tell you why I don't. This is the major reason I didn't like it. If you give him that, if you kick that field goal and he makes it, it's now a tie game, and you give him Burrow plenty of time, and they were running the ball well, they could have just run that clock down, kicked the field goal to win anyway. I think at this point, if you're the Chiefs, you go for it and say you get it. Either one, you waste a few more minutes and then kick that field goal, or two, you drive down the field, score a touchdown, and give them no time left. Like that, that time window is a weird window where I'd rather have them gone for. I think going for it, you you do more benefit than kicking the field goal and making it. And in, in my opinion, I, I just with the Chiefs, I just think it's weird. Like fourth and ten and under, I have no issue with them going for it. <laughs> I yeah, I do agree with you, but then. The flip side, right, is their defense isn't that good. So it works both ways of like, well, you, yeah, you know, if you don't get it, I mean, look, in a sense, right, we saw it yesterday with the, with Tampa Bay. Tom Brady wanted to go for it. That was like fourth yeah. and 10 on their own, like 30. I mean, that, but he wanted to go for it. Todd Bowles decides not to go for it. And then because they end up winning the game, then that's the right decision. If they hadn't won yeah. that game. Did you see Brady admit that too yeah. after the game? In the interview, yeah. like, what did you think of that? You wanted to go for? It. He's like, hey, I guess you made the right decision. <laughs> but that's it, right? It's so outcome based. They don't win, and everyone goes, "Well, Tom Brady wanted to go for it." And Tom, and here's my big issue with Todd Bowles: he just every time they cut to him on the sidelines, he just looks like a. It looks like you've just like transported someone in who's never watched an American football game before, and then gone. You're the head coach, and they're just like staring at the field, like kind of trying to figure out exactly what's going on. You know, like trying to look sort of in control, but at the same time, you're like, I got no fucking clue what's happening here. And they're like, should we should we punt or do we go for it? And he's like, uh, punt. Okay, okay, we'll punt. We'll punt. Like, there's no- his 
his movements and reactions are slightly more realistic than those animations they put together. <laughs> yeah, he does look actually a lot like a Madden head coach. Like when you're playing a video, the video game and it like cuts to them on this and they're just like arms folded, just staring there. And yeah, there's just nothing. It's just emotionless, dead eyes just staring out on the field. You're like, you got, you're, you're up 30 in the Super Bowl. And just the guy just staring out onto the field still. But uh, yeah, I mean, that Chiefs game, it's a weird one. And, but it's the problem with the Chiefs, right? They're, they're beatable. They're like unplayable at times and then also very beatable and they kind of beat themselves too. Um, but yeah, I was surprised given the situation in that game, I was, I was, you know, watching both the Niners game and the Chiefs game at that moment in time. And I, there was a moment where I kind of felt like, oh, I almost don't need to watch this Chiefs game anymore. Like the Chiefs are going to win. I'm going to focus more on this Niners game. And then in a, you know, blink of an eye, the Niners game was over. And then you kind of flick back to the the Chiefs game. It's like, oh, the Chiefs are going to lose this. And that was, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird NFL season, right? Like all of these teams have major flaws, including the Chiefs. But I, not that we need to discuss those games, but I guess we could acknowledge two impressive wins for the Cowboys and the Eagles. Right. Yeah, continuing to score points at will. <laughs> they both look, their offenses both look very strong. Yeah, so they, you know, they, they've both had blips. And again, this is the issue. It's like, you just don't know. You like think you can fully trust them, and then next week they'll just have a really bad performance. But it feels like even if these teams are all flawed, that you can, I'm feeling more and more comfortable in like who the top three teams are in like both the AFC and the NFC at this point. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. And it's not the Giants. <laughs> the the Giants, I I'm I'll stamp this today. We can timestamp it. The Giants have a zero percent chance of making the playoffs. They I I bet you they they're two games out of making the playoffs when the season's done. We can save that for next episode. We'll take a look at their schedule and uh Okay. and see but i think they'll yeah i don't know i don't i need to look at what all the permutations are for them and it's the not other. good it's not a good schedule and their offense just it's not improving everyone else in the nfl is improving and i think what the giants got lucky on is they caught a lot of teams before their offenses were fully together and won some games because their defense was pretty strong but now their defense was a bend, no break defense, but now their defense is bending and breaking. <laughs> so <laughs> when you have a defense that's broken and an offense that can't start, it's not good. Yeah, not a great combination. And Eddie, I'm sorry to say you're going to ride with Purdy because Baker Mayfield has been signed by the L.A. Rams. <laughs> oh, wow. I guess it's it's good that we managed to sneak that in because otherwise we'd had some people listening to us wondering why I dedicated so much time to the possibility of Baker. But L.A. Rams seems the right place. You know, he can star in all those commercials and, you know, he's get the perfect balance between sponsorship deals and occasionally losing football games. All right. On that note, should we uh, wrap things up and then reconvene in a couple of days to talk about the World Cup quarterfinals? All right, let's do it. Talk to you later. See you. See you.